welcome to the Good Hard Story Podcast, where we believe that the good story and the hard story can be the exact same story. I'm Katherine Wolf, and I'm a stroke survivor, a speaker, an author, and co-founder of Hope Heals. Tune in here every week for conversations about wholeheartedly living in a good hard story. Join me in this joyful rebellion to the darkness where we discover the treasures hidden in our hurting. Friends, we are so grateful you are here today for the Good Heart Story podcast. What an absolute honor, honor it is to have Dr. Esau McCauley with us. This amazing reverend is a professor at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, which you may have heard of. And he's the author of many works, including Sharing in the Son's Inheritance. And his book, Whoa, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope, won numerous, numerous awards, including Christianity Today's Book of the Year several years ago, guys. I mean, he's big time. (laughs) And his latest project, which he's going to share with us about today, is entitled How Far to the Promised Land, One Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. He is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. His writing has also appeared in places like The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and Christianity Today. He's married to his wife, Mandy, and has four children. So... This guy is really amazing, and um, yeah, I'm I'm a little shook. You said yes. <laughs> I feel kind of like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this moment is happening, and and yet, Isa, I should start by telling you, I imagine on the outset you would possibly or or one looking into our lives and stories would not think we share a deep solidarity, but quite surprisingly, from a very young age, the Lord wired me to long to see justice um, and long to be a part of sharing hope and the hope of Jesus in dark places. And unlike your story, which I'm sure you will share in part, I did not grow up in poverty in the American South as a black man, quite the opposite. So I grew up as a very advantaged white girl in the deep South and led a very different story throughout my life. And yet, um, here we are. And I'm very aware that what you are doing so beautifully, both as a New Testament scholar and thinker, sharing the hope of Jesus in context that so desperately need it, is actually a little bit similar to what my life looks like now. Yes, I grew up in the South, um, 
as the son of a single a single mother, and I experienced racism and injustice. But but one of the things, but the, the, all of those things are true. But I was also like every other human being on a search for meaning and purpose. Mm. And mm. anyone who's ever been on that search can under can understand and identify even if they didn't have those exact same experiences. And like you said, even if you didn't experience the exact same, but no, I mean, you couldn't experience the same racism and injustice, but you experienced in your life struggle. And I think that struggle and and pain and the people who come out of the other side of that struggle and pain with our faith intact, I think that creates a kinship that we recognize in one another. Oh, and that, I, and, that and is I think, so and I think it's fun. almost like we've received comfort from the same source, which is the cross and the resurrection. Mm. And I think there's a family possible to be built around that cross. And maybe that's why we get along so well. Oh, I have chills at, at that word because that's it. And, you know, I don't think I had a, many tremendous struggles in my yeah. young life, but yeah. starting at age 26 and for the past 15 years, I've had very significant struggles. Yeah. And yet, um, I think what the Lord has really revealed to me is that is what is most personal is actually most universal in each yeah. one of our stories, yeah. that it is the same struggle, whatever the suffering looks like, and it is the yeah. same hope that is yeah. available. And I share with you, I think, this deep, it's hard to put words around exactly, but a deep desire to not just be the one who made it out alive, the one, yes. the survivor, yeah. the hero. Yeah. I struggle so much with um, guilt, survivor's guilt, honestly, yeah. of I'm, I'm the voice that gets to matter, yeah. you know? And I know you deal with this too. And I, I'd love for you to speak to it because you so beautifully have. And I am with you that the ones who didn't make it out, their voices matter. And yeah. no one says that. I love that you say that. I yeah. love that because that is true. <laughs> yeah. Well, in my book, um, How Far to the Promised Land, the— or the original story that the the impetus that begins the narrative is my father. He was a truck driver, and he left our family um, when I was much younger. And his departure had a tremendous impact on our family. It sent us tumbling down the economic ladder. And hmm. when he was home, he had um, drug and alcohol problems, which led to him being abusive. And so, hmm. when he was home, it was very difficult. And when he was gone, it was very difficult. So, um, but he is, he's on a, um, he's on a, a road trip back from, he, he, he's in California and he, there's a single car accident um, where his truck, he just drives his truck off. We don't, we don't know what happened to this day. Mm. This truck um, drives off the side of the overpass onto the overpass below and he passes away. And um, my family um, quickly decides that they wanted me to do the eulogy. And that was tricky because anyone who's ever, maybe maybe people don't do this a lot. Maybe if you're not a college person, you don't do this a lot. But when you do a eulogy, one of the things that you do is you have to, in some sense, make sense of the person's life. Mm. 
And the way you do that is you talk to their friends and their families and you kind of learn their story. And the whole point of every eulogy, and this is this this is this is what we get when we talk. Every point the point of every eulogy is that like every single life matters. And it's not if you're doing eulogy, at least as a Christian, you can't lie about what the person's life was. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to say, what does this person's life mean in the wider purposes of God and what he's up to in the world? And so since I didn't know my father very well, I had to sit down with members of his family and cousins and aunties and uncles and those people and began to learn his story. And in the process of coming to grips with his story and what he went through, I couldn't tell his story without it impacting me. And what became How Far to the Promised Land was the outgrowth of those stories that I began learning about during the context of the the eulogy. And what I was trying to say is that for the most part, and this is the thing you were talking about, for the most part, the people who whose story you want to hear is mine. Like what happens when you grow up in poverty and you end up as a New York Times columnist and a professor? And this is the only story that matters from that community. And what I learned in the context of writing the eulogy and finding out, finding out about my family history, what I made peace with was all of these stories matter. And these stories matter not as object lessons to kind of push the protagonist along, but they matter as revealing something about what it means to be human and what America and sometimes what the South does to Black people. And so the kinds of injustices and things they experience are instructive in their own right, not only not only in so much of the reflective of my story. And so I did feel comfortable writing a book that wasn't, it's funny, it's a memoir that kind of rejects exceptionalism or, or, or rejects kind of the, the, the hero as the center of the story, but it puts the community um, at the center of the story. What I wanted to do was to show people the community that surrounded me and right. why those stories were important because they're so easy to toss aside. And I think that I think that one of the things that we both do in our own in our own way and our own ministries in our lives are saying the people who you ignore are valuable to God. Of course. The people whom society judges and finds not worthy of our attention, our compassion, dignity, love and care are extremely valuable. Oh gosh, yes. Absolutely. It's not it's not only that they are extremely valuable as objects of compassion, but they're valuable as persons whose stories and whose achievements are are are, are different than ours, but no less glorious. Mm, absolutely. I, I I I deeply deeply love this thought of it's it's this community story. It's a communal story. We're all living. We're not individuals living individual stories. No, we are part of communities living stories. Yeah. You know, I've heard you talk about as you've done a deep dive, even in, in eulogizing your father, and and clearly in thinking through issues of parenting and just how you've kind of come to a place of recognizing yeah. that when you are a child, you think the story started with you. You, yeah. I, I've heard you say that multiple times, and I love that, because isn't that the truth? When you're so, a kid, yeah. the story starts. But one of the things that happened is that when I was a child and my father left us, I tell this story about um, he promised to take me on a, a, a ride with him when he was a truck driver. And we would kind of go on one of these famous road trips that he always spoke about. Um, and so I packed up all of my stuff and I got ready to leave. And 
then he goes and he, he doesn't come back. And so I took that as a child as like acts of malice that like he when he would go and he'd come back that he did so because he hated me. Mm. And when you get older, you begin to realize that like I my father was a character in his own drama. Yes. And what he was battling was deeper and more complicated than what I might have realized. That doesn't that doesn't erase the things that he did. It doesn't make those things not damaging. But once I saw him as a person in his own story, then that gave me space for compassion. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's one thing to say, I'm angry with my father because he um he wasn't around. He wasn't around with us. It's a totally different thing to say it is a tragedy that there is someone who doesn't have a relationship with their children. But I knew someone who wasn't my father and, I, and they told me that. They came into my into my office and said, I don't have a relationship with my children. I would say, well, my hope for you is that you would find a way to reconcile. And so when I began to see my father, and this is what the eulogy does, the eulogy puts someone's life in context. When I began to see my father as someone who in large ways was shaped by things that happened before I was even born. Mm. It didn't erase those things that he did, but it gave me space for compassion. And I think that one of the hardest things to do, and this is hard because when you go up in a difficult context, you don't want someone to come into um, the out, from the outside of that store and say, well, you should just forgive. It's easy to forgive. Well, some things that it's hard to forgive. Some some wounds don't heal easily. And sometimes people aren't in a place to receive that forgiveness and re-engaging with difficult members of the family could lead you to receiving more trauma. So I, I don't I don't say that like for everyone it's a simple matter of forgiveness. But what I could say is hopefully we get to the place where we can wish for them to become better versions of themselves. Right. And that's what I was eventually able to do. And I would love to know what led you to write the memoir, although you may have just told us, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, part of it was we tend to only value the stories that we deem successful. Right. And mm-hmm. I really wanted to say, no, there, there are stories that are beautiful, even if they don't end the way that, that we might write in like a fiction story. And so I really wanted people to see, but not only not only to see, right, to see the community that shaped me, but to, to, to when they see that community, to be to be forced to face this question: Are we feel com- do we feel comfortable living in a country that does this to people? Mm. I mean, we can we can make all kinds of arguments. We can pull out statistics, and we can have like a million political conversations. And those things can be done. We have biblical conversations. I wrote a whole book dealing with these kinds of issues. But I wasn't in the mood to necessarily argue with people about you know, this piece of data, that piece of data. That's been done in other places. What I really wanted to do, to do is to see. And so one of the things that's really interesting about the Bible is that the Bible has a, a bunch of different genres. Right. There is the law, the Torah, where there's just here are the rules. But there's also narrative where God teaches us through narrative. There's music, there's there's psalms, and the psalms cover every genre. Mm. And so one of the things that I always ask myself when I sit down to write is what kind of genre is God calling me to use to communicate what he wants me to say to the world? 
Yes. And in this particular case, I thought that narrative was a good way to communicate the truth of what happened and the legacies of what happened. So my grandfather was a sharecropper and he was a, he was a tenant farmer. He started picking cotton at four years old. And this isn't like some long ago on day. My grandfather's like 85th birthday is, is coming up this week and I'll be actually in Alabama. And so this isn't like some long ago time. This is my grandfather's generation. He was four years old. Yes. And he was, he was picking cotton and he went to segregated schools and they would let the kids out of school um, for harvest time. And so he, every year, they would, no matter how much cotton they picked and how good the crop was, he would get to the end of the year and his family would be told they barely broke even. And his family was robbing them. And the family that was robbing my grandfather's living off his labor, that family and their son wasn't picking cotton in the sun at four at four years old. Mm. He was literally eating and paying for his school and his books based upon my grandfather's labor. And so by the time my grandfather gets to um, eighth grade, he's a straight A student, <gasps> but he's like 17 years old because he's missed so much school because of, um, he talks about, sorry, he talks about what it was like when he would get to school because he'd drive past a nice school building and then he'd go to the segregated school building. And they had to go downstairs and like put the coal in the furnace to, to heat the place. And so that legacy though, of my grandfather being undereducated because of Jim Crow in the South had a tremendous impact on my mother. Cause they say every study's ever shown you is the greatest predictor of academic success is the academic achievement of one's parents. Well, what does it mean then that my grandfather was undereducated by law and custom vis-a-vis Jim Crow? And so we imagine this idea that Brown versus Board of Education happens and schools are magically integrated. And so I said to my grandfather, what were you doing when Brown versus Board of Education passed? He said, I don't know. No one ever told me. Like that day, no one told him. He said, like, we didn't have a radio. We didn't have a television. What happened the day before and what happened the day after? Um, nothing really changed. As yeah. a matter of fact, the, the schools aren't integrated until my mom, his daughter, gets to first grade. I think it's first or second grade is when she finally enters integrated schools. He never goes to integrated oh. And so th- this is, once again, and, and the point of this as a narrative is that connecting what happened under Jim Crow to my mother, she gets to school. You got to imagine you're the, you're, you're, you're the first generation of kids who are, who are integrating these elementary schools. And some of the teachers don't want to teach her. They don't really talk to her. So you're the black kid in the classroom. What are you experiencing? She tells a story of going through um, a roll call. Her name's Laurie Ann. And there is another, there's a white girl in her class who's named Laura or something like that. And the teacher says, you know what? I don't want to have two different girls with, with similar names, but we're both going to call you by the white girl's name. So my mom just had her name changed at school and she kept that other name until she got to like sixth or seventh grade. And then she's going through, they're going through the road at the beginning of the year and the teacher calls out the name that's on the road, my mom's real name. My mom corrects her to the white girl's name. And the black teacher said, well, why? this is the first time having a black teacher in like middle school. He said, why would you tell, why would you um, tell me that your name is Laura when it says that it says Laurie Ann right here? She said, well, the teacher told me in first grade that I had to change my name because, you know, it needed to fit with the other students. And that teacher said, you know, to my mom, never let anyone tell you you're anything other than what you are. And so that was a tremendously healing moment. My mom literally got her name back. Mm. But these kinds of stories and things linger 
down through the generations. And so what I, what I was trying to do is not argue with people, not yell at people, but show people what it's actually like to kind of walk through this South over generations in my family um, yeah. in this black, these black and brown bodies. And, 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 and what does it mean to struggle for a, a better and freer and more full life? Hmm. Wow. Cannot wait to read it, Esau. I've loved this thought of remembering the actual truth of the story that maybe as a child, you couldn't begin to understand. And then going as far as doing the work of re-narrating the story, retraining your brain on what is the accurate picture of the story and this memory. And it's not easy. And it's so important. No, I I think that you're correct. I think one of the one of the things that that happens is that we're trained to tell our stories in a certain way. Like there's a reward for making yourself the hero. You get rewarded with people thinking that you're a great person. You get rewarded with um, acclaim and sometimes resources. Right. And you can trick yourself into believing that. One of the things that success can do is it can kill empathy. Mm. And you can start to believe the lie. You know what? I was special. And everyone who didn't get to where I got to failed because they deserved to fail. And so one of the stories, for one of the stories, for example, I tell in the book is, is that what was special about me is that God was gracious towards me. And that I had time and space to find myself. And for me, then what I want to do is I want to try to create a, a, that same kind of opportunity of time and space. One of the things that we try to, we're, we're so easily tossed people aside. Mm-hmm. And we say that we know who they are. We know that they're, they, they will only be what they've ever been. But this is the whole point of grace, right? The whole point of like, you can have this radical encounter with God and, and your life can take a totally different path. And so what I want to suggest is we begin to look at the fruit of our accomplishments as manifestations of the grace of God. Mm. And we want to give God's grace the opportunity to do his work in the lives of others, which means that every single human life is precious because time is the gift. And as long as there's time, there's the opportunity for a plot. Oh, that is so good. Yes. And too many, what I'm saying is that too many times Christians, Christians who believe in the resurrection of the dead, who believe in life everlasting, who believe in an all power God, powerful God, yeah. believe the people's stories are over. Mm-hmm. And we see someone and we write them off. And I kind of go, well, isn't the whole point that at any moment God can miraculously reorder someone's life? Listen, I think I heard that your mentor has been N.T. Wright, and that's one of the coolest things I've ever heard. I cannot believe (laughs) that. N.T. Wright is, um, yeah, I don't don't even really have words. Like, his book, Surprised by Hope, like, changed me. And, yeah, yeah, I would love to hear, um, what's it like to be the mentee of N.T. Wright? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So, but I I would say, I would say, one of the reasons why I decided to to study with N.T. Wright was his ability to con- combine rigorous um, scholarship that was well written 
with love for the church. Mm, mm. And so I don't know if I've been able to emulate that, but I just thought that I, that was the context in which I wanted to do my PhD study. Mm-hmm. I think that um, I I had this conviction that a New Testament scholarship that was only concerned with impressing other academics was boring to me. Because and, and, I, and I'll explain to you why. Because when I was where I was in my neighborhood and in my city and in my community, it wasn't the New Testament scholars who were helping me. It was the mothers and deacons in the church. Right. It was the, it, 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 it was it was the members of the congregation. It was my pastor and the people who were around me. Always. And so one of the things people might say, well, you're supposed to be a New Testament scholar. What are you doing writing memoirs? And I said, well, because my 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 goal in life was never to impress y'all. <laughs> um, my goal was to be of service to the community that shaped me. And so what N.T. Wright has done is me and him are from totally different worlds. But he modeled a, 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 a consistent return to the, the church and the people of God as the object of, of his, his literary focus. Now, he does more technical scholarship than I do, and I do a little bit more trade scholarship than he does. I don't know if we'll ever, I doubt you'll ever get um, N.T. Wright to do a memoir. That would that be, <laughs> we'll see if we can get him to pull that off. Got but, it. Um, <laughs> but, I, but nonetheless, I think that studying with someone who, uh, who, who cares about the church gave me permission to care about the church. And one of the things that's really, that makes me a little bit nervous about um, how far to the promised land is whether or not people are going to allow me to write this kind of book, or they're going to say, "You are a New Testament scholar. You stick to doing to doing Bible." So I've never been very good at doing what people said and sticking within one genre. I've kind of just written whatever was on my heart. Mm, I think that's so beautiful and important. So I'm sitting here thinking in my own life um, whether the value of teachings or the value of narrative resonated most deeply when I needed it most. And a hundred percent, I mean, I, after the stroke, I inhaled every Beth Moore Bible study I could get my hands on and every, you know, fill in the blank book on this or that and hope and grace and whatever. And when it came down to it, do you know who Johnny Erickson Tada is? She is a I do. I, yes, do. I, I know yes. exactly. Yes. An incredible woman, quadriplegic, yes. living in California. It was her work, her narrative book, her original yeah. book, Johnny. It was her YouTube videos that I would watch 8,000 times. Yeah. And it was like her lived experience that moved me the most yeah. to now have this ministry that is, you know, one a thousandth the ministry of John Erickson, but is somewhat similar. I was going to say, one of the things they say about saints, these are the, the, the Christian heroes who passed away. Of course. is The saints are, they are a living exegesis of the Bible. Mm. That their lives reveal to us what they believe about Scripture and about God. And by studying the lives of the saints, you study a lived interpretation of Scripture. And that sometimes seeing that lived interpretation of Scripture is tremendously healing and helpful for us. That's what you're talking about. When you talk about, about the reason why someone's story is important, 
Because it's one thing to hear about, oh, you should love your neighbor. You should, you know, believe in God when things are different. Right. It's another thing to see that when the, when the messy stuff of life kind of pulls, its, manifests itself. Mm. And so what you were talking about with what Joni did for you is that she exegeted the Bible in her life. Yes, yes. And sometimes, and this is the reason why we need Christian, they talk, they talk about this in Hebrews. Since you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race that is set before us. That's right. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him, I, I, I won't go. I won't go. <laughs> I won't go too far. But what I'm saying about that is, the author of Hebrews is like, look around. Yeah, you have this community of people who've done these things, and because of that, you can join in and and, and run alongside them. And I do believe that our stories, our stories, are ways in which we can reveal the things that we can never reveal in our arguments. Right. One of the things that that that, uh, that that made me so excited about um, writing this book is that yes, it deals with poverty. Yes, it deals with racism and intergenerational stuff. But at bottom, it's a spiritual biography. It's about me trying to make sense of where God was in the midst of all of that suffering. And so. I, there were a lot of people who um, would be interested in reading a book about race and racism. The other people who might be interested in reading a book about poverty and, you know, the American South. There might have been people who might be interested in reading a book about a spiritual a spiritual odyssey over the course of one's childhood. But I felt like for me and How Far to the Promised Land, the only way that I could tell the true version of my story was to include all of those things. Because it was precisely in that context of being black and poor and Southern and dealing with racism that I am wrestling with the question of God and his work in the world. Right. And that is in that context that I found um, God as a friend and not an enemy in, um, in making it through the life that he'd given me to live. Of course, I talk a lot about the desperate need in all of us for survival guides. That this, yeah. what what our lives get to be is survival guides for someone else down the road yeah. that we may never know. And that's not because we wrote this really cool book about this certain theology, because we yeah. told our story and yeah. Jesus in the story. And that just one the, changes. One of the things that you do as a parent is you... Live. I, I, I tell I tell people that parenting and marriage is like a super. In, it's the most intense form of Christian community. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. where people see who you are and what you really are. It's not like on Sunday when you can pretend for an hour or two, or like you know, small group where you can edit out your prayer requests. But when you are in an actual family with children, they see you, and what what you can do is that that you can. No matter what you say to your children, that's important. You could teach them the Bible. You know, I try to do that. But what I try to also do is to live before them as a Christian. Hopefully that they will see in the way that I live, in the way that I treat their mother, in the way that I treat them, a, a life so transformed by the goodness of God that they themselves might want some of that goodness too. Mm. And inevitably, inevitably, I can't do that perfectly. But even when I fail... Even when I fail, that failure can point towards the goodness of God because I can say, I I failed in this moment, and but there's someone who never fails you, 
Or in the same way that I can begin again. So good. When you make a mistake, you can begin again. Right. And so what what I think I was trying, I think what we're trying to do as Christians then is to narrate the goodness of God through the lives that we live in front of people. Mm, God, say that again. My goodness, that's a profound truth as parents. That is what we are trying to do. I love um, this whole notion in parenting that you've really presented um, so beautifully that we we are showcasing to our children our lives and our lives, not our words as much, are yeah. hopefully communicating the goodness of God through through our story. I mean, that's that's all we can hope for. One of the things that I was trying to do in How Far to the Promised Land, and I know it sounds weird because everybody can read this book, but what I wanted to do was to give these stories to my children. Yeah. Because sometimes when you have children, you try to protect them from the hard things in life, and the job is to keep them safe. Of course. Um, and that's important. You do. You should. You should keep your children. You should not expose them to undue harm. But I felt like they needed to know God's ability to take us through difficult things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that the life that they live now is, is, is the product of someone surviving significant suffering and that they are heirs to that story and they're stewards of that story. Mm-hmm. And it's their job to carry that story forward. Um, one, of the, one of the things that the last things you do when you write a book is it, well, at least for me, you get to write the, the dedications. And in the in the, the the things of gratitude. So the book is dedicated to my mom, but in the afterwards, I say to my children that um, you know, that I pray that God might always be for them a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, that he will be the one who guides them on their journey towards the promised land. And that the stories that they received from me now belong to them and it's their job to carry it forward. And that's what we can do. We 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 can Give to those whom we love that deposit. Here is my story. You now, whoever you are, have received it. And what you do with it and carry it forward is is your responsibility. Mm. That's that's everything. That's all we can hope to do is carry with us um, the lessons from what's happened in the past and hopefully carry some tools in our backpack through life that we learn yeah. of how to yeah. find Jesus in the mess of our suffering yeah. and move forward in just a real, like a holy burdened place to carry it well and to suffer yeah. well in it. I, um, uh, Jay and I's first book, Hope Heals, was our just our memoir of what happened yeah. to us, just the stroke basically. And we dedicated that book to our two boys, James and John. And there was such a deep desire in us then as 33-year-olds already. And we're talking, John's a newborn baby at the time. But to say, this story is your story too. It's not just your dad and I's little boys. This is now the story that you carry with your life. And there was such a comfort because I had very tenuous help that if for some reason I'm not around in X many years and if for some reason their dad isn't, 
this is kind of morbid, I'm sorry, but... No, 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 but, it's not morbid at all. It's, it's the reality. It is the reality. Is They have this manual of, yeah. here it is, and it's a narrative. Here's here a manual is. of what mom and dad did when their life blew up. And, um, oh, it makes me very weepy that that is what we get to do, and that is such a beautiful part of the book writing process, yeah. is here it is, guys, for you. Basically, the eulogy that I gave to my father uh, is 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 recounted in the final chapter. Mm. Words from the eulogy kind of are are there, and my children cool. are in the audience listening to this eulogy. Mm. And the final sentences in the book are a conversation that I have with my son, who has himself dealing with the aftermath of the death of his his grandfather. And so there is a sense in which the story that begins with me and my father and the impact of his departure upon us closes with um, me and my family and them kind of receiving in the eulogy the stories to make up the content of the book. So there's an actual handing over of a lot of that material in in the eulogy itself. Wow. And in the book itself. You know, my, my own kids have now sat through a lot of different, you know, speaking events and listening yeah. to mom and dad talk. And we've listened to the audiobooks of our books. And I just see the wheels turning in my kids of, oh, wait, yeah. this is my mom and dad. And yeah. I'm a part of this. And it's it's complicated for sure. It's yeah. not one note awesome. No, it's but not. It's, it's, not. Um, it's very special. And yeah. I, um, I'm very, I think, I think I'm very grateful that um, we get to steward a story and show our kids what it means to suffer well. I don't think that anybody has to, no one enjoys suffering. Right. And there are times where the hard parts of our lives are simply hard and annoying. But I do think we can get to the place where we can say, I see where God was in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. And because we can't avoid suffering and our children can't avoid suffering and those whom we love can't avoid suffering, the only gift that we have to give to them is precisely the ability to find God in the midst of it. Mm, yes. And in that sense, we can say that it is good. We can say that it is good that in a, in a life that knocks us over, God came to pick us up. Wow, that is it. And when our children get knocked over, we will say God would reach. You know, there, one of these things, forgive me, in the Bible, they, they talk a lot about the arm of the Lord. Mm. And the, our arm of the Lord is a strong arm, and that, that his arm is, 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 is mighty to save. And no matter how far we're falling, there's no place where the arm of the Lord can't reach out, grab us, and pick us back up. Mm. Oh, yes, absolutely, yes. Seems like the, the perfect um, tee-up for me to ask you the question I like to ask on every Good Heart Story podcast, which is, Esau, what is good in your story? What is hard in your story? And how are you living well in the tension of both of those things right now? Um. The good in my story right now is that I wrote uh, a book that I'm really proud of 
and um, that I'm really excited about people getting a chance to read it. The hard end of the story is what we talked about a lot, is that that story is a hard story. Right. And I think that you know that telling that story requires a return to the most painful parts of your life. And that's hard, right? It, it, it costs something to, to recount a very difficult time for the benefit of others. It does. And so, and so the hard part is that I now get for the next few months to talk about the hardest part of my life over and over again. And so that is both a, a challenge and a joy, right? But it's never easy, right? Right. It's like you are, um, revealing something for the benefit of others that isn't easy. Right. And so I would say it's good that this story exists in the world, but it's also hard that it exists in the world. That is a that is a true statement right there. And I got to tell you to close this, just a small amount of encouragement in that. You know, I've been talking a lot about the worst thing that ever happened to me. Yes. A lot, to a lot of people, a lot of places. Yeah. And they say neurobiology teaches us that when you tell your story to an empathetic listener, it changes how you feel about your story. Your brain changes. Oh, look at this. You rewire my brain. Exactly. So you've helped me then, Catherine. Exactly. you helped my brain. Yeah, you're welcome. You are so welcome. And that's <laughs> what people have been doing for me and people have been doing for you is in telling your true story, you are helping change the way you feel about the story. Your brain is changing how you remember, how you internalize the trauma of the story. And that is our great hope. And that is what God does. He allows us. It's so, it's so perfectly communal. And so that cloud of witnesses around us, again, helping heal our brains from our trauma and sharing it. It's just, it's gold. So keep going in that, Esau, and I will pray for that good, hard thing you're going to be living through in the months to come and pray you come off the other side with a deep rewiring of the story. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for joining us on the Good Hard Story Podcast. To learn more about what we are doing, follow us on Instagram at Hope Heals. Check out all things Hope Heals at HopeHeals.com. Don't forget to subscribe to this wherever you get podcasts. And please feel free to share this episode with somebody who needs to hear it. Good Heart Story Podcast is a production of Good Heart Story, LLC. It is produced by Leah Case and Mary Austin Hall. And I am your fearless and fabulous host, Katherine Wolf. Come back and join us every week where we believe that the good story and the hard story can be the very same story. We are with you and for you, friends.